0: Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. That is a lot of food for thought. Um, <laughs> we could probably be here all day um, sort of exploring almost any one of those themes. And before we start, while you were talking, I was thinking, sitting in this room where we are, and you are not looking up, but we, many of us, are looking up at some of the really difficult um, and exhilarating and challenging and heartbreaking um, moments that defined the career of Peter Humphrey who also was present at that creation, who was here in Minnesota as mayor of Minneapolis, um, advised by people like Josie Johnson, who's being honored today on everything from civil rights to corruption that was rampant in this city, um, to thinking about how to build a new world after World War II. Um, And we have a lot of students here today Um, both American students and international students who are here under the Humphrey International Fellows Program, who are um, going to be the ones that help build toward the future. And so, um, I know that um, they will have been thinking about um, the words. The way that we will take questions is that We have people who will be passing out note cards. If you have a question and would like to um, uh, write that down, and then we will we will address questions in that way. And while we're waiting for questions to come up, um, last week we had the ambassador from Mexico here, and or I guess about ten days ago, at another global global Minnesota event. And she was talking about how the United States and Mexico, if you combine the economies of the border states, you know, that instead of looking at Mexico as a problem of you, know, refugees, you should be looking at it as an opportunity um, in terms of economics. And you mentioned in a couple of places the, the issues of both Mexico and of migration. And maybe continuing that theme of looking forward, How should the the United States be thinking about these questions, these vast questions of migration, the movement of people, not not just as it affects domestic politics, but as a foreign policy issue. Um, Because I think a a lot of times it it does get reduced to that question of domestic politics. Um, And it fits in with some of those other broad themes that you mentioned. Well,
1: thank, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a great question, and we could spend the rest of the afternoon uh, uh, addressing aspects of it. Uh, but today we are facing the largest movement of mankind in history. <coughs> Frankly, if you look at displaced persons both internally and externally around the world today, and the number of people who um, have declared themselves uh, to be in, in some kind of exile or refugee status or who are seeking asylum, um, uh, we have never faced this amount, not even after World War II, uh, which, is, which is quite remarkable. Um, and I mentioned in the, the course of my presentation that uh, problems converge and governing becomes harder. And this is especially true in, in, in the area of, of migration. Because migration provokes uh, all of the pathologies of every society. Um, although we like to congratulate ourselves on our immigrant background, we also have some dark moments in our history on immigration um, when our society, for whatever reason or other, felt that it just had enough of any different kinds of providers and they put a stop there at different points. Uh, and if you look at um, the larger um, uh, refugee crisis today, and you look at the number of refugees that are sitting in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, and then you realize that the United States um, uh, even in a good year during the Obama administration was prepared to take 110000 a year, um, it's kind of altering. Um And even though um, we played a larger role in addressing the refugee problem through our funding and through our efforts to help other countries deal with them, um, in many ways uh, we've shared important responsibilities. And by this I don't mean necessarily that we should be taking all these refugees. Uh, I, I just I mean to say that, that absent Uh, Countries like the United States taking a much more uh, assertive role in determining a global response to migration, we aren't going to be able to solve it. Uh, And we're going to find ourselves beholden on a few countries that act as plugs in Mm -hmm. in migration processes. One is Turkey, which collects $3 billion a year from the European Union to hold uh, African and Middle Eastern migrants uh, in, in Turkey. Um, uh, But one is Mexico also, which the United States has been trying to browbeat uh, into um, blocking migrants coming uh, from the south. But where we really need to have a much more cooperative relationship in in response with the Mexicans. Because Mexico increasingly is finding that migrants become a huge problem for Mexico. Uh, First and foremost, because getting through Mexico is a challenge these days. Uh, because of the nature of uh, power structures inside of Mexico, but especially the, the way in which uh, trafficking cartels control large swaths of the country that migrants typically use um, to, to travel. Um, uh, and so many of these migrants are diverting and staying inside of Mexico instead of moving to the United States. Or many of the, the cartels are realizing that um, they can uh, pick among the migrants um, the ones that that most meet their need. They're choosing young women to traffic. Uh, they're choosing young men to be their runners and their hitmen. Um, but also because they are taxing the smugglers that are are bringing the migrants forward, uh, it has generated a degree of liquidity for the, the cartels that is not based on the sale of cocaine in the United States. And so it facilitates uh, their their operations inside of Mexico. So there's a very big reason for Mexico to cooperate with us. And we had begun to explore that in a meaningful and positive way at the end of the Obama administration. That has gotten caught in a larger issue around migration in Central America. And um, uh, we really need to find a way to reach a point where we're working cooperatively with Mexico. And I assume that the Mexican ambassador Yes, she covered actually quite, quite a bit of
0: territory about you know, trying to get away from just thinking about the flow, that that current sort of crisis issue, as sort of the issues that that we address. Um, I'd like to um, move to a different part of the world, and we do have a couple of international students who are from North Africa. so, because this is another place, and in particular it's a place where there was intervention on the part of the Obama administration in the events in Libya, for example, um, and there are, on the one hand, Tunisia had elections uh, yesterday, su- successful presidential elections. On the other hand, um, there are difficulties that remain across North Africa, and including some of these migration issues. Um, I don't know how involved you were in those issues in the Obama administration, but you know, what are your thoughts about um,
1: U.S. foreign policy in that part of the world? When I was confirmed as the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs uh, in early 2016, it had taken me seven months to work my way through uh, the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I think I was held by every senator at one point. <laughs> um, but um, I finally made my way through. And, once I was confirmed, uh, I did what any self-respecting nominee would do to my left country. <laughs> and, uh, I went to North Africa. I went to uh, Tunisia, uh, Algeria, and Morocco. And it was part of a, a larger effort we had at that point uh, to build um, a, a counter-terrorism uh, cooperation across Northern Africa in the aftermath of Libya, but also look for ways to connect what we were doing in northern Africa to what we are doing in the Sahel. Mm-hmm. Because increasingly we were seeing um, terrorist groups and criminal groups migrating down from the north into uh, the northern parts of um, uh, Burkina Faso, um, into Niger, into um, uh, Mali, into Nigeria and beyond. And in fact we're beginning to create a, uh, a zone of conflict in northern Africa which really stretches from Somalia all the way across to Mali. And very distressing and and disturbing, the kinds of violence that was taking place there. And um, in many ways, it it was all about improving our cooperation, not just with the countries in the region, but also with the European countries that had a profound interest in what was happening in Northern Africa, especially the French, Mm -hmm. but also the Italians and the Germans. uh, Because many of them were looking for ways to to uh, uh, block or slow the movement of migrants uh, through, the, through that region. Um, but as, as we think about uh, how we operate in, the, in those countries, um, the, the state, the, the, the governments themselves, the states, have limited control and capacity. Uh, and they really do require significant help uh, if, if we're going to ensure that they have some degree of, of, of success in, in fighting uh, the Boko Haram's uh, and, and the other uh, groups that operate uh, along, along the Sahel. Uh, but it means resources. Uh, it means a, a willingness and ability to cooperate and collaborate in new fashions with, with governments with whom our history of cooperation and collaboration is quite limited. Uh, but it also means uh, understanding that at the end of the day, the Europeans have much more in this than we do. Uh, because um, Europe faces uh, that North North Africa. And it's actually quite close uh, as as we see as people throw themselves into the ocean mm-hmm. and try to find a way to navigate uh, to, to Europe from northern Africa. But we can as- assume that that will not stop unless we find a way to in- improve and enhance our cooperation.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, maybe on that note, there are a couple of questions that sort of touch on the seams so I'll try to combine them. Is, in, in addressing those issues and in not just being reactive, is the UN and you know, sort of global systems generally, do, do, is there the ability or capacity to lead or address those problems? And what do countries like the United States need to do to make those, those systems that were created? Um, in the late 1940s work in a way that doesn't just react, it doesn't just you know put up blue tents where they're needed, but actually addresses some of the
1: problems. Yeah, I've indicated that that governing is becoming harder and that cooperation and collaboration, especially within the institutional structures that have recreated the UN uh, is becoming harder and difficult. And my own experience um, is that Once you put a UN peacekeeping mission in place, it's really hard to end it uh, because of the nature of of conflict um, and the way in which we address conflict. Um, But also, increasingly, um, I have real doubts about um, the ability of of UN structures by themselves uh, to solve problems. They can freeze problems. They can manage problems. They can try to limit the extent and the impact of problems. But the actual solution to them really depends on great powers, if you want to call it that. uh, Or powers that have an immediate interest in it. And so I think we need to increasingly look for hybrid solutions where we can use a regional authority like the African Union or the Organization of American States and international mechanisms like the UN and its constituent bodies, but it has to have a a group of countries behind it that are determined to solve the problem, if the problem is going to be solved by itself. Otherwise, um, we end up in circumstances where what we're trying to do is prevent outrage. We're trying to prevent assault and genocide, but at the end of the day, we don't seem to be able to address (coughs) the underlying problems. And this really becomes an issue in which, where American power and American convening and convoking capability and how we spend our money uh, is is hugely impactful. Uh, And and, and this is where stepping away from global institutions and then not contributing elsewhere is really um, almost criminal. Uh, Because absent that, other problems will not be solved.
0: So, and that actually leads nicely into again, a couple of questions. Uh, today, um, Ambassador Bill Burns had an editorial in Foreign Affairs, but many others have raised the question of the attack on our diplomatic force and the undermining of the State Department. Um, does, if, if it, if the solution to these problems depends on Know, political solutions that are led by countries. Does the United States have a capacity to do that? Um, and what needs to happen in the future to rebuild that? Yeah. We, we do we have, have that capacity, but it's not magical.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's the product of people and education and commitment. And you know, we have a remarkable diplomatic service. The United States Foreign Service is one of the best, if not the best, in the Uh, And we're globally deployed, and we're expeditionary, which means we go places nobody else goes. And we go only with a smile, and whatever we have in our head. We don't go with air support, we don't go with field medical units, you know this well. We don't go with everything that our US military takes. Um, And and yet we do remarkable and and amazing things. You would think that, especially in the aftermath of the Cold War, especially where we showed that American diplomacy not only had the skill and the ability, but the intestinal fortitude to face down and defeat a really determined enemy, that this would be celebrated in some way. You know, there was a a French diplomat who once said that uh, generals were the spoiled children of historians. <laughs> and the diplomats who are the unacknowledged bastards,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the illegitimate children.
1: Um, because behind every great general and every great victory is a great peace negotiation. Mm-hmm. And one of the points I was trying to get at when I said that it's more important to win the peace in than the war. Just ask the Japanese and the Germans. Mm-hmm. Um, is that we need uh, an able forward-looking diplomatic service. Uh, And that means that we need to have more foreign service offices than there are musicians in the United States military, Mm -hmm. which is not the case right now, believe it or not. Uh, If you're a tuba player or a trombone player, there are probably more of you than there are career ambassadors or or others out there uh, doing the job. So I would make an argument that um, uh, we should be expanding our diplomatic service and looking for ways to put them in more places around the globe. And that's where institutions like Downfree School are so important because you are building this capacity. Mm -hmm. And this is happening in universities all around the United States. Just really (coughs) incredible um, young women and young men are being fashioned and formed in a way to kind of push them into the world and assume uh, leadership and and responsibility. And I would argue that, that this is important. And let me highlight one thing that really worries me right now about the whole Ukraine uh, debate. Mm-hmm. Is that if you look at who's being called right now to testify and being subpoenaed to testify, they're all State Department officials. Mm-hmm. Kurt Volker was a former Foreign Service officer, but he was brought in as Special Envoy to Ukraine. Masha Yovanovitch was our ambassador in Ukraine, a Foreign Service officer, and one of our very best. Gordon Sondland is a political appointee, but still our ambassador to the European Union. Um, William Taylor, who is a retired Foreign Service officer and now our charge of affairs in Ukraine almost certainly be subpoenaed. And there's a good possibility that others will be subpoenaed. Uh, And what worries me about this is is that the Department of State and the Foreign Service is suddenly going to find itself embroiled in a brutal partisan fight over the future of the president. Um, and if the president prevails, how is he going to view the Department of State, and how is he going to view the United States Foreign Service? And mm-hmm. so, finding a way to protect our diplomatic service, to not politicize it, to not use it for political purposes, uh, is, is going to be a challenge in the short term. Uh, but then recognizing that we can do more in the future is is going to be very important. Thank you, and
0: I think. You know, another issue that we've, that we've discussed in some classes here is the idea that if, that, if the bad scenario happens, that um, you increasingly have a personalist or a personalized government rather than one in which the kind of nonpartisan service that you and I um, uh, engaged in um, will be devalued. And that is something that I think a lot of people aren't, don't think through. A lot, um, and that would be hard. Would be hard to rebuild. Um, uh, to go back to um, thematic issues, um, several people asked why you didn't put climate change at the top of your list of um, challenges um, or critical issues. I can't remember. Um, you talked about it very much um, in terms of converging issues, but. Um, how, and, and I do know, I'm just gonna e- explain, there are a number of students who have classes starting in sure. another part, so a few of them are gonna be sneaking out, but um, uh, uh, when you think about critical issues that we face, um, a lot of people would put climate change at the top. Well, I would agree with that,
1: um, but uh, I didn't because I was imagining the list that uh, President Trump or Secretary Pompeo or Secretary of Defense mm-hmm. Esper had kind of written down by the side of their bed. Mm-hmm. As they woke up in the morning and they are saying, oh, what am I working on today? <laughs> um, okay. mm-hmm. um, and, and climate change, i not going to do That's
0: right, yeah. Um, yeah. So
1: yeah. that doesn't mean it's not important. That's why I mentioned it later in terms of, of um, uh, the kind of converging challenges that we were facing. It was not. Uh, to indicate that somehow what's happening in Saudi Arabia or uh, Burma is somehow more important. Uh, it's, it's just that uh, the to-do list that the current administration has, that would not be on mm-hmm.
0: So when you talked about um, issues of economic inequality, and I think, you know, we're turning more globally. But, um, you know, one thing I think we're very aware of here in a city like Minneapolis is problems of domestic inequality. So with with resources so constrained and with our own issues to address, um, how can the U.S. sort of be out there in the world trying to create this rebirth that you were talking about when we have this sort of lack of resources in education um, and concerns about the differences that that creates um, within our own country?
1: Yeah. Well, to begin with, um, our foreign assistance budget is quite small compared to other budgets in, in the U.S. government, it's just a few percentage points uh, of our of our larger budget. Uh, and I can remember um, when I was serving in Brazil the first time, I was special assistant to the ambassador, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and the mm-hmm. United States, responded in the first Persian Gulf War. And I can remember sitting with a colleague of mine who was, at that time, uh, our public affairs officer. He was in charge of of what was then the U.S. Information Service uh, activities in Brazil. Uh, And um, his job was to present the United States in a favorable way uh, Mm -hmm. to the Brazilian people. And I can remember watching um, a uh, television report uh, from Baghdad. If you will remember in those days, there was a uh, a TV reporter, whose name escapes me right now, uh, who actually stayed in Baghdad and reported on it Yeah, that's right. and He reported on some of the initial t- attacks mm-hmm. against uh, Iraq from U.S. forces, and in one instance, he was on the balcony of this hotel, and a cruise missile came whipping by. The guy went, "Oh my there's a cruise missile!" And I remember uh, the guy I was with, His name was Peter Dechens. Looked at it and said, "Hey, there goes my budget."
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: in other words, that cruise missile cost what he would spend an entire year yeah, on, on diplomacy. And, and so I mean this is, this is part of uh, the, you know, we have to make choices. Uh, and if we want to spend a trillion dollars in Afghanistan, great. If we want to spend a trillion dollars in Iraq, great. Um, but that means that we're not going to spend money elsewhere. Uh, and so we, we actually, uh, actually need to think about this. Yeah, we actually need to think about our priorities. We need to think about um, where we want to put our resources. And I can tell you that in, um, uh, in, in terms of return on investment, you don't get any better than diplomacy. Because first of all, all diplomats work on a federal pay schedule that is based on seniority and that is capped. Mm-hmm. So they're only going to make up to a certain amount of money, and then they're going to stop making money. <laughs> um, but they're going to keep working, believe it or not. And, and, uh, and so you get a lot for the little that you pay for.
0: Great. Um, so during your career, um, you, I know, in the Obama administration, spent considerable amount of time on Venezuela. And we have seen it come up to the front of the news cycle and now <laughs> fade back out again. Um, what do you think the United States should be doing
1: about the situation in Venezuela, what should our goals be, and how could we, how should we think about addressing those? That's a great question, um, and um, you know, I, I tried on, on several occasions to fashion uh, dialogue processes and bring the U.S. to support dialogue processes between the government and opposition, uh, none of which were successful. Um, so I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask, mm-hmm. since so I've already failed a couple times. Um, but. Um, But what worries me about Venezuela is not just the political fight between the opposition and the government, Um, it's really the larger uh, humanitarian catastrophe that is today Venezuela. And I really think that in the short to medium term, that has to be our focus, that we have to find a way to staunch the hemorrhaging that's taking place in Venezuela and address the the inability to, to get access to food, medicine, the kinds of things that keep people in Venezuela. Because the impact on our really important partners in Colombia and Ecuador and Peru and Chile and Brazil and Panama and Trinidad and beyond um, are significant. And um, in an effort to win a political fight, we should not be putting our, our best partners at risk. Like the contrary, we should be finding a way to protect them from what's happening inside of Venezuela. And then bring greater pressure to bear uh, on all parties inside of Venezuela to come to terms. Because in many ways, I think that what we're seeing in Venezuela right now is really kind of a 21st century civil war. Mm-hmm. A 20th century civil war is what we saw in Colombia. It's all about insurgencies and armies and helicopters and AK 47s and landmines and IEDs. And, um, but the Venezuelans who have this um, in the 19th century and early 20th century, awful history of violence in which much of the interior of Venezuela was depopulated in fighting between warlords. And so they have a natural aversion to that kind of violence. But they don't have an aversion to political conflict. And what has happened over the last 20 years is really an unhinging of a political deal that ran from 1958 to 1998, and that distributed power between two political parties. And that broke down with the emergence of Hugo Chavez. The purpose was... (coughs) excuse me, the purpose was to capture power and to hold it and not allow your adversaries to get access to that political power. And then once you had secured the institutions, you would then secure the economy and you would use economic benefits to support your people and punish your adversaries and drive your adversaries to the far margins of society and keep them there. And then reshape the country as you saw fit. And that has produced kind of a, a counter-revolution of sorts. Uh, And right now, you've got two sides vying for um, political power, but the inability to come to terms is really driven by maximalists on both sides who think they can win and therefore are unprepared to give in or to negotiate or to create a space in which the Venezuelan people can express themselves and then try to come to some deal that accommodates both sides in, in, in some fashion. And I think that we, instead of only playing um, a, a, a one-sided play um, in which we are kind of help globalize the problem where we find ourselves face, facing off against the Cubans, Russians, and the Chinese, and others. That We really need to, to be the, the, the country that, that finds a way to, to bring all these sides together in some fashion. It's really hard to do and at the end of the day, a, uh, a member of the Brazilian opposition told me once that, Uh, That's why this problem is that until we decide whether or not we are going to fight or reconcile, we really can't solve the problem. And and so it really does align with the Venezuelans themselves, but we have to create the environment in which we encourage them to find that solution.
0: So maybe a follow-up question. Um, Very often, are there certain um, foreign policy problems that then get caught up in U.S. domestic politics, the thinking about it or the decision-making about it? In In both parties, all types of administration, Do you think that we can get past that uh, in the short and medium run? I would
1: hope so, but it's hard to do um, for all the reasons you're familiar with, especially with uh, Cuba involved in a significant way in Venezuela, Mm -hmm. because that plays to politics in Florida, uh, which um, this administration has identified as an absolutely essential Mm -hmm. state to win. It was a state that President Trump won in the last election. They have no intention of losing it in 2020. Uh, And if you believe um, people who study elections, if the president is able to secure Florida, then a Democratic nominee would have to win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. not to mention Minnesota, Mm -hmm. um, uh, in order to prevail. Now, these are all projections, um, but it means that um, Venezuela has become more than just a foreign policy issue. It's now a domestic policy Mm issue.
0: So what we're used to seeing say, with Cuba is now also about about Venezuela. So we're going to just have one last question, um, an easy one, (laughs) Um, with events of the past week and even the past days um, on the border of Turkey and Syria. What does that augur for the future of NATO? Linking
1: those two issues together. No, that's that's a good question. It's not a 98
0: mile an hour fastball. Yeah. (laughs) um,
1: Let me start, first of all, by saying that um, you know I had uh, the honor of being President Trump's first Secretary of State. I was the Secretary of State for 12 days, <laughs> and the public trouble, um, <laughs> until Rex Tillerson was confirmed. Uh, and then I worked as Secretary Tillerson's acting deputy until John Sullivan was confirmed in May, and then I returned. My lowest level of bureaucratic energy, the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, but in the process, um, I, I spent a, a fair bit of time early on um, with the president, and I can tell you that what he did the other day uh, in Syria and the decision to pull American troops is something he wanted to do from day one. Uh, he was determined um, to pull us out of what he considered to be uh, a completely untenable. Uh, and one that put uh, American soldiers at at great risk uh, for other people's purposes. Um, There's a lot of people who don't agree with that, Um, especially in the U.S. military, people who have built a long history of relationships fighting alongside the Kurds and who believe that um, the Kurds were all that saved Iraq uh, in the days of ISIS uh, and uh, have been our central partners in the larger fight against uh, uh, ISIS. But um, but in this environment, the president has worried deeply about a a relationship with the Kurds which the the Turks found deeply uncomfortable uh, because of their own history of terrorism inside of Turkey and their efforts to to keep um, uh, Kurds from um, agitating for their own homeland, either inside of Turkey or, or beyond. And so they have always viewed, the Turks have always viewed our relationship with the Kurds very suspiciously and and very darkly. Uh, And um, they are intent on taking advantage uh, now to to break that relationship forever. Uh, Not only in terms of the attacks they've launched on the Kurds, but also by uh, rubbing what the Kurds consider to be our fecklessness in the face of the the Kurds. And um, uh, the President's okay with that right now, Uh, but the Congress is and if there is a, um, a larger threat to Turkey's place in NATO, it will come from the U.S. Congress right now. And then we'll see what happens in 2020 in terms of elections. Um, but the Europeans themselves are considered themselves caught quite unawares uh, by um, the President's decision. It was not kind of widely socialized ahead of this announcement. Um, and the Europeans absent kind of an anchoring American presence, are going to be very reluctant to put their troops, or keep their troops in Syria. Uh, And and therefore, um, um, uh, a a lot of how European members of NATO, which is everybody but the United States and Canada, um, uh, how the European members of NATO view Turkey is going to depend a lot on how Turkey behaves uh, in northern Syria, and especially um, what it does in regard because, as I mentioned at the beginning, if ISIS finds a way to um, reestablish itself, and if it does so in a way that it has some geographic enclaves that it can use as planning stations to begin planning attacks here in the United States or attacks in Europe, um, Turkey will pay. Not to mention if they allow the refugees to be employed right.
0: again. So. Um, we, I think, could stay here for several hours. Um, your breadth of experience and your thoughtfulness about the really complex challenges ahead of us are give us really a lot of food for thought. And both for the members of Global Minnesota and for our students and staff and faculty who are here, um to to think about um as we go forward so i'd like to thank you for coming back to minnesota back to the university of minnesota where you started uh, earlier than most of us did and um, uh, we and welcome uh, thank you all of you who are here today as part of our ongoing partnership between global minnesota and the university of minnesota especially the humphrey school of public affairs it's um, really a great benefit, I think, to all of us to have this organization, the, these two institutions, the Humphrey School and Global Minnesota. And I often tell the students, you know, that the rooms in this school, whether it's the Humphrey School itself, the Stassen Conference Room, you know, now you know we have the Roy Wilkins Room, another great civil rights leader, and now today the jo- Josie Johnson Room. You see a lot of people who will be gathering out here who a long time ago uh, didn't give up hope when things looked really dark. Um, and so I think we do live in a complex world and it is challenging, and we need to keep that in mind as we go forward. So thank you so much. I'll let you, thank just you. Really appreciate it, thank you. all.